0: Take a Bible out this morning and find Psalm 90. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can follow along this morning. Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is unique because this is the only psalm in the entire book of Psalms attributed to Moses, meaning Moses is the author. There are anonymous psalms. I guess technically we should say it's possible that Moses wrote other psalms in the book of Psalms, but this is the only one that we know he wrote. So we're going to just say this is the only one written by Moses. It's not the only song that he wrote, and I mentioned a couple on your outline. There's one in Exodus 15 right after the people have come through the Red Sea and they've turned around and they've watched God close the sea on top of Pharaoh and his army. Moses led the people in a song and you can read that song in Exodus 15. There's another one in Deuteronomy 32 at the very end of Moses' life. Moses and Joshua stand up in front of the people right before Moses climbs Mount Nebo to die and they sing this song. They lead the people in this song you can read in Deuteronomy 32. So we wrote several songs, but this is the only psalm. And you just see the note right there at the beginning says, A Prayer of Moses, the man of God. One of the things you need to know is that there's a connection with Psalm 90 and funerals. You go back in history, many denominations look at Psalm 90 as a psalm that should be read at a funeral. In fact, in the Church of England, the Book of Common Prayer, Specifies that part of the funeral liturgy is that you read Psalm 90. And as we talk about some of the background in the Bible of Psalm 90 and some of the historical setting, I think it makes sense why you would read this at a funeral service. Biblically, when you want to know what's going on in Moses' life when he writes Psalm 90, this is my best guess, okay? I can't connect all of these dots very closely and tightly, but I think that there's pretty good reason to believe that Psalm 90 was written right after the events of Numbers 20. Now, some of you say Numbers 20. I know exactly what happened in Numbers 20. Of course, that makes sense. Others of you say, but you know, it's been a while since I've read Numbers 20, and I don't know exactly what was going on there. Now, a lot of you know the story of Moses' life, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'm just going to sort of walk through Moses' life with you, detail some of the things that he experienced all the way up to Numbers 20, and then we'll talk about what happened in that chapter. So Moses was born in Egypt. He was born a slave. And he was born under a death sentence that all of the Hebrew boys should be killed. And you can go back and read the story in the book of Exodus through a remarkable series of events. Moses ends up not dying as a baby, but actually being raised as part of the royal family In Egypt. I know that Hollywood tries to fill in a lot of the details and a lot of the gaps in this story with plot intrigue and relationships with Pharaoh or his sons or his family. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot of that other than that he was miraculously saved, raised in Pharaoh's family. And then the Bible says that when he was an adult, he went out, he was walking around one day, and he sees an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew slave, and anger overtakes him, frustration overtakes him, something overtakes him, and he murders this Egyptian man, and he tries to bury him in the sand. He tries to cover his sin, and you can't cover sin, and Moses couldn't cover his, and people find out what he's done, and he's forced to run away. He runs away to the wilderness, and in the wilderness, a couple of things happen. One thing that happened to Moses in the wilderness is that he took up shepherding, got a new job. And his soon-to-be father-in-law had a lot of sheep, and Moses just walks right into this business, and he becomes a shepherd. Second thing is, he gets a father-in-law, meaning he marries a woman. And so he has a family, and he's shepherding sheep, and that just sort of goes on. It doesn't give us a lot of details in the Bible, but it goes on for year after year, decade after decade. And then one day, as Moses is shepherding the sheep, God appears to him, you remember the story, in a burning bush. A bush that was on fire, but that was not consumed. And God says to Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and you're going to say to Pharaoh, Let my people go that they may worship me or that they may serve me in the wilderness. And so there's a back and forth, but eventually Moses goes. He does what God wants him to do. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, the Lord says, Yahweh says, Let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh refuses, he's not going to let his slaves walk out of Egypt. And when Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, God responds with ten crippling plagues, just one right after another, like a punch to the gut. And almost every time, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let them go, but then he changes his mind and he says, no, I'm not going to let them go. And there's this back and forth. And the tenth plague, you remember, is the worst. It was the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. And through the death of the Passover lambs, God spared the firstborn in Israel, but all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt died. And with that, Pharaoh said, leave, get out. So uh, Moses says to the people, let's go. And they get out. And then there's the story at the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind one last time and he's coming after the people and God splits the sea and they walk through the sea and they turn around and they watch God drown Pharaoh's army in the very same sea that they just walked through. Moses sings a song. We mentioned that earlier. And then he leads the people to Mount Sinai, and God gives the people the Ten Commandments. He gives them this summary of what he wants them to be and who he wants them to be and how he wants them to live. And then Moses selects 12 men, one from every tribe in Israel, and he sends them in to spy out the Promised Land. They're supposed to go in, check it out, bring back a report. And you remember this story. This happens in the book of Numbers. Twelve men go in to spy out the land. When they come back, ten of them are united in their conclusion that we should not, they should not go fight for the land. They should just turn around and walk back to Egypt. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go. The Lord's with us. We can fight. This is the land. This is the plan all along. We should go take it. But Israel listens to the ten instead of the two. And they decide they'd rather just go back to Egypt. And so God just sort of tells them, turn around. And they just walk in circles in the desert for about 40 years. And God says, everyone who was over 20 years old, when you made this decision, when you listened to the 10 instead of the 2, everyone over 20 is going to die. There's a lot of people walking around the desert. There's a lot of people dying every day. For 40 years, walking in the desert, funeral after funeral after funeral After funeral, hundreds of them every day, until all the people in this generation have died. And then God says, I'm gonna bring you into the land. So imagine you're Moses. You've been born as a slave, you've been raised in the royal family, you've been an exile in a foreign country. You've been sent back to your home. You've confronted the most powerful man in the world. You've led God's people out of slavery, seeing some of the most amazing miracles that have ever happened from the creation of the world. You receive God's law on the mountain. You talk with God face to face. You spend almost 40 years walking around in circles, watching all of your friends... And all of your family members die. Forty years. And then you come to Numbers 20. Numbers 20 is the low spot in Moses' life. In Numbers 20, at the beginning of the chapter, his sister dies. And at the end of the chapter, his brother dies. Remember, all of this generation have to die before they can go into the land. That includes his brother and his sister. And now they both die and they've had some power struggles and some issues, but they're family, and he loves these people, and he loses them. And in between his sister dying and his brother dying, Moses hits really the low spot of his entire life. God gives him some pretty clear instructions, and Moses just doesn't obey God. He's been faithful to God all these years. He's loved God. He's, he spoke for God. He's prayed to God for the people. But in this one moment, he publicly disobeys the Lord, And the consequence is, because of your disobedience, because the text says you did not uphold me as holy in the sight of the people, you don't get to go into the promised land. After all that, 38, 39, 40 years walking around, watching all your loved ones die, all the people who came up out of Egypt with you die, die. And your one hope is at the end of this, when they're all dead, we get to go in. And then now at the very end, Numbers 20, it's the very end of this 40-year period, God says to Moses, you're not going to go in. And he looks around, and his sister's died, and his brother's died, and he knows that he's not going to go in, and he knows the clock is ticking on this 40 years. And basically what Moses knows at this point in his life is, I'm going to die really, really soon. I'm one of the last people, maybe the last person who needs to die before the people can go into the promised land. Look on your outline at this last idea. Moses is praying as a godly man who knows that he's living on borrowed time. He knows it's up. He knows this 40-year period has almost come to a close. He knows all the people who have been with him all these years have passed away and they've had all of these funerals. And now he knows he's not going in. And the people are right on the doorstep of going in, but he's not going. And he realizes, my time's up. I don't have much time left. And I think that this is when Moses writes this prayer. The things that he's reflecting on and the things that he's asking God for, I think, are reflective of this situation. So, let's read the psalm, and then we'll talk about what Moses has to say here. Psalm 90 beginning in verse 1, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth in the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom this morning. Help us to understand what Moses has written, what you have inspired him to write. Help us to feel the weight and the authority of these words Father, help us to reflect on the things that we see Moses reflecting on. Give us a heart for the things that Moses is asking for. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a simple psalm. Moses at the end of his life. He's reflecting on certain things and he's asking God for a few things. And that's how we're going to approach the text. We're going to talk about the things that Moses reflects on in his last days weeks months moments and we're going to talk about the things that he prays for and i just want you to remember this 38 years after all that he'd gone through in his life 38 years walking around in this desert and on the tail end of it sister dies brother dies and god says you're not going to go in We know from the book of Deuteronomy that even after that conversation, Moses came to God one more time and he said, please let me go in. Just let me go. And when he asked God to let him in, he was standing on the plains of Moab. There's a map I'll show you. Put this map up for me. There it is. On the right side of that arrow, you see Mount Nebo. Down the middle in the green area is the Jordan River Valley. And over on the left side is Jericho. That's the promised land. And Israel's camped on the right side of this river. And they're looking down across this valley, looking across the Jordan. And they're looking up. They can see the promised land. The distance there is about five kilometers, five miles or so. Just look right across there and you can see it. You're so close you can just almost reach out and touch it. And he says, as he's looking at it from this distance, please let me go over. And God says to Moses, you can read this in Deuteronomy, no, and don't ever ask me that question again. You're not going. How easy it would have been for Moses to be bitter, to be angry, to be frustrated, to be discontent, to be upset. But when you look at Psalm 90, I don't think you see any of those things. You look at Psalm 90, you see this is a man who knows clearly who God is and who understands who he is in relationship to God and understands how he ought to approach God. He's not upset. He's not complaining. He's not griping. He's not groveling and begging for God to change his mind. He's at peace because he understands the truth about God and he understands the truth about himself and he understands how to come before God. And so that's what I want you to see this morning. So here's the first thing Moses reflects on. He reflects on the grandeur of God. You could say the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the bigness of God. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses grew up and his dwelling place was Egypt. And then, as an adult, his dwelling place was the wilderness. And then, for a time, he went back to Egypt. And then, with the people, he left Egypt again and he went back out to the wilderness. And for decades, he's been hoping that his dwelling place would be the promised land. This has been a man on the move. But at the end of his life, he looks back and he says, You know, my home is not Egypt, it's not where I'm from, it's not where I belong. And my home is not this wilderness, this desert that we've been walking in for decades. And my home is not even over on the other side of the Jordan. As much as I want to go over there and see it, that's not my home. That's not my dwelling place. And what he says to God is, more than the comforts of Egypt, more than this wretched wilderness, or more than the beauty of the promised land, I just want to be with you. You are our dwelling place. Not a piece of real estate. Not my hometown, not the state of Texas, not this place that I've set my hopes on, on this earth, but you. The promised land is not the prize, you're the prize. And it's worth asking yourself as you think about all of the things that we have a tendency to set our hope on, what do you see as the prize? What do you see as the most valuable thing? Is it something here? Is it some place here? Is it someone here? Maybe it's not here, but it's there. It's heaven, but it's an idea of heaven where it just, everything revolves around you. You're the center of that eternity. All of your desires and wishes come true there, and Jesus is almost an afterthought. Maybe it's being reunited with loved ones in eternity that is the great prize in your mind. I don't know what is this great prize that you're setting your hopes on. But I know that if you're setting it here, you're setting it in the wrong place. And I know that if you're setting it there without Christ at the center, you're missing it. And Moses gets it at the end of his life. He says, look, it's not about Egypt. It's not about the promised land. It's not about this wilderness. It's about you. You are our dwelling place. What a strange thing to say, right? A person. God is our dwelling place. And he's saying Look, the ones who wanted to go back to Egypt, they missed it. The ones who are dying to walk into the promised land, the promised land is not going to satisfy us. Only you can satisfy us. And he gets that here at the end of his life. He reflects on the grandeur of God. Look what he says in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have always been, you are now, and you will always be who you are. As God you just wrap your brain around that one or do your best to wrap your brain around that one And you have a man at the end of his life, and he's just reflecting on Who God is Before he ever gets to what God has done for his people He just stops to reflect on who God is the bigness of God the magnificence of God the majesty of God the grandeur of God And he's reflecting on these things and I don't know about you But I know about myself And I know how busy life can be and how distracted I can get. And I know that I need to stop every now and then and reflect on that. Not even to stop and reflect on all the good things that God has done for me, although there's a valuable uh, exercise in doing that. But just to reflect and to pause and to think about who God is. From everlasting to everlasting, your God. And here at the end of his life, With clarity of thought, Moses is reflecting on that. Secondly, he reflects on the sinfulness of man. In verse 3, he talks about returning to the dust. It's an allusion to Genesis 3, where this curse comes upon humanity, and God says, you came from the dust, and you're going to go back to the dust. In verse 5, he talks about a flood. It's an allusion to Genesis 6 In the story of Noah and the flood, where God punishes humanity in their rebellion with the flood. Verse 7 talks about God's anger. Verse 8, our iniquities and our secret sins. Verse 9, God's wrath. Verse 11, God's anger and his wrath. Look, I don't want to be pessimistic when we talk about this issue on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or Sunday school. But I do want to be realistic and I certainly want to be biblical. Moses stops at the end of his life, and of all the things that this man could be thinking about, he's thinking about who God is in in all of his beauty and all of his majesty, and he's thinking about his own sin, who he is as someone who has fallen far short of God's standard. The Bible says in Genesis 6-5 that left to ourselves, all of the inclination of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually. That's us. Only evil all the time apart from God's grace. The Bible says in Psalm 51.5 that you and I show up on this earth. We exist in, the, in our mother's womb with a sin problem. The reason we do sinful things is that we are born sinners. Jeremiah warns us and he says, Your heart is wicked and deceitful and it's beyond understanding. Sin has so twisted and warped your heart, you can't trust it. You can't listen to it. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, Romans 3.23. It says the consequence of our sin is death. Ephesians 2 says that left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead, incapable of any good thing before God. And the Bible says in James chapter 2, in case you want to try to skirt around all of those other verses somehow, James 2 Breaking one commandment, one of the lawgiver's commands, just one of them, makes you guilty. There's no point in patting your back for how many you've kept. If you've broken one, you're guilty before the judge, before the lawgiver. Again, not to be pessimistic, not to be a downer, not to make you sort of feel false guilt or beat yourself up, but just to be realistic and say, look, at the end of his life, when he's thinking about really important things, Moses stops and he thinks about the fact that God is really, really big and eternal and amazing and great and glorious. And he stops and he looks at himself in comparison and he says, I'm none of those things. I'm the opposite of all those things. And I promise you, when you catch a vision for the grandeur of God, you're gonna see yourself clearly. And as you begin to see yourself more clearly as a sinner, you're gonna have an even bigger view of who God is and all his glory and his majesty. And I'll just say this before we move on. Sometimes at church or with our lost friends or we're sharing the gospel or we're talking to our kids or maybe even for VBS, we're getting ready for VBS, sometimes we're so quick to get to Jesus that we forget to stop and to talk with people about what Moses is thinking about here. We're just ready to get to Jesus. We want you to invite Jesus into your heart. We want you to pray this prayer about Jesus. We want you to to call out to Jesus. We want Jesus to be your Savior. Before you get to any of that stuff in your life or with the people you care about, you've got to talk about who God is. And you've got to talk about who we are. And until somebody comes to grips with what the Bible says about our sin, they don't need to hear anything about Jesus. They're not ready to hear anything about Jesus. And Moses is talking about two very gospel-oriented issues. Who God is and all his grandeur and who we are as sinners. And he's reflecting on these things and he's thinking about these things. And that leads him to think about the brevity of life. Look what he says in verse 4. A thousand years in your sight, their but is yesterday when it's past. Just a watch in the night. Verse 5 and 6, he says, we're like grass that springs up in the morning and it's dead by afternoon. Verse 9, our life goes by like a sigh. (sighs) Gone. Just that quick. Verse 10, even a full life doesn't last very long in the grand scheme of things. You may think that this is morbid and depressing, but I think this is something we need to remind ourselves of from time to time. Especially in the country like the one we live in where we have this illusion because of medicine and technology that we can be healthy and live forever and have great quality of life and nothing can ever stop that. This is probably a good reminder from us from time to time. You know, there's an ancient practice in in Rome that I think is a little bit strange to us, but probably a healthy thing when a Roman general would go out and fight and he would win battles and he would come back victorious, he would come back to the city and they would have this big triumph, they called it, this big parade and they would march through the city and the general would be there and they would have the standards and the soldiers and the army and everybody would be walking through the streets of Rome and it would be a big parade, a big party and there would be flowers and confetti and drinking and food and celebration and all of these things and behind the Roman general there would be a slave. And the slave had one job. Slave walked behind this general in all his glory and all his victory and he called out something. In Latin, it's memento mori. Memento mori. Memento mori. All the way through the streets of Rome. Everybody's celebrating. We're victorious. We're the winners. We're great. And here's this slave standing behind the general just yelling out as loud as he can. Memento mori. Memento mori. Memento mori. Remember you're going to die. Remember, Mr. General, and all your armies and all your power, you're going to die. Don't forget, one of these days you're going to die. Remember, you're not going to live forever. Christians, as Christianity began to spread in the Roman Empire, they picked up on this idea of being reminded of our mortality. And they passed it down from generation to generation. It's interesting, when you look at the Puritans, some of the men who left Europe and came to the New World looking for religious freedom, they would paint these self-portraits like this one, and they would be holding a skull. And you know what they called that skull in this picture? They called it a memento mori, a reminder. You're going to die one of these days. And when they went out to, to bury their dead, the Puritans, they made tombstones that looked like this. I know it's not really clear, it's an old tombstone, but it's got like a, a biker emblem on the top, like a skull and wings. And like, these guys were crazy. What in the world? No, they're Puritans. And right up on the top, they said, Remember, you're going to die. Don't forget, you're going to die. And I realize that Moses, as he writes this, is probably at the very end of his life. And so this is very real to him. It's very urgent to him. It's very pressing to him as he talks about the brevity of life. But I think it's something that we ought to think about more often. Remember, you're not going to live here forever. Remember, you're going to die. Don't forget these things. Think about these things. Meditate on these things. And so that's what Moses is thinking about. Those are the things running through his head. God is great. I'm not. And I'm not going to live forever. So, what does he ask for? What does he come to God and request? Three simple things. Number one, he asks for wisdom. Give me wisdom. Verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Does it seem like a strange thing for a dying man to ask God for wisdom? I have a lot of people that ask me, would you pray for so-and-so? Or would you pray for me? I'm sick. Or this person is sick. Would you pray for them? And sometimes I will specifically say, I will pray for them. What do you want me to pray Sometimes I don't ask that question, and I just assume, well, they want me to pray that they would get better. They want me to pray that there would be healing. They want me to pray that there would be less pain. They want me to pray that there would be no suffering. But here you have a man whose clock is ticking, and his time is short. And of all the things that he could ask God for, more time, a quick painless death, Healing, another chance. He says, even with his time being short, I need wisdom. I think, on the one hand, Moses understood the weight of his responsibility as he led God's people. And he knew that, look, as long as I'm here to the very end, I'm going to need God to give me wisdom to do what he's called me to do. And I hope that you feel that weight as parents, as grandparents, as friends of people who don't know Jesus Christ. I hope you feel the weight of all those situations as you go through life and you say, look, whether I have five years left on this earth or 50 or five minutes, I need wisdom. I need you to give me wisdom. I also just want to point out to you that Moses is praying corporately when he asks for wisdom. He's not saying, give me wisdom. He's saying, give us wisdom. And in the back of his mind, he knows, I'm not going to be here to lead this people forever. I'm going to be gone. And this people is still going to need you. Joshua was going to need you. The leaders are going to need you. And so he's praying not only for himself, but also for the people. He asks for wisdom. Secondly, he asked for satisfaction. For satisfaction. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your love. Verse 15, make us glad. You know, it's a sad thing that in the United States and probably throughout the history of Christianity, definitely in the United States, We've lost the propaganda war on joy and happiness and gladness and satisfaction. There's this prevailing notion today that the only way to find those things is to look inward and to find them in yourself. You realize you live amongst people every day, you rub shoulders with them, you talk to them at the office, you're related to them, some of you may be them who are looking for joy and looking for gladness and looking for satisfaction, and you're looking in all the wrong places. You're looking in a place where you're never going to find it. There's a philosopher named Pascal who said this, all men seek happiness, this is without exception. I believe that to the tips of my toes. Every person you've ever met in your life wants to be happy. They want that. The problem is we look in all the wrong places for this happiness. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, It it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child. He's saying we, you and me, we're like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. That's us. That's me, and that's you. We have this tendency to look in all the wrong places for the thing that we want so much, satisfaction and happiness and joy and gladness. And Moses here at the end of his life gets it. He says, look, I'm not going to get all that stuff in Egypt, and I'm not going to get all that stuff in the promised land. The only place you get it is from God. You want happiness, You want joy, you want satisfaction, you want gladness in your life. Moses is telling you where to find it. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad. God, you can do it. This world can't do it, money can't do it, pleasures on this earth can't do it, but you can do it. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. He's asking God for true satisfaction. And lastly, he's asking for God's favor. Verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. This is a man who's at the end of his life and he has given his life to one great task, to leading this people, And at the end of his life, his prayer is I want your favor to rest upon us and I want you to establish the work of our hands. I want you to establish what I've done. Now, listen, Moses is not praying this because he wants future generations to remember how great he is. He's painfully aware at this point in his life that God does not need Moses. God just said to Moses, You're going to die. Instead of you, I'm going to use Joshua to bring the people into the promised land. I don't need you, Moses. So Moses is under no illusion that he's done God any favors. But his prayer is simply at the end of his life, God, I have spent my life to serve you, to lead your people, to point people towards you, and I pray that you would bless that and establish that. Not so people look back and remember how great Moses was, but so that they look back and they remember how great you are. And I think that's a great prayer for your life and for my life, for you as an individual, for you and your family, and for us as a church family, to say, God, establish the work of our hands. Let your favor be on us, not so that they think Landon's great, not so that they think our family's the best, not so they think Emmanuel is the greatest church ever, but so that they know you and they see how great you are and they look to you for satisfaction, not to anything else that this world has to offer. So that's what Moses is thinking about. That's what he's praying for. And we're going to end by doing exactly what Moses did thinking about these things and praying for these things. So you bow and let's pray together. Father, you are a great God. And your majesty is beyond what we can understand or comprehend. And we acknowledge our sin before you this morning. Father, we believe what your word says about us. We believe it because your word says it, and we believe it because we know ourselves. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that our lives are short, just a sigh. And we pray that as long as you leave us here on this earth, you would give us wisdom. We pray that we would... Understand that satisfaction can only be found in you, not in anything else that this world offers us. Father, and we pray that you would establish the work of our hands, that your favor would rest on us, not so that we would be remembered as great, but so that people would remember that you are great. Father, we're grateful for the chance to worship, to sing, to pray, to come into your presence. And we're grateful for your word and for the things that it reminds us of. Things that sometimes make us uncomfortable, make us uneasy. Things that sometimes we'd rather not think about. But we believe that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that this morning it would change the way that we think about life, that it would change the way that we think about you, that it would change the way that we think about ourselves, that it would change us. And Father, we pray for that In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.